0: Our scripture reading before us is a narrative passage. It is the very first of the nativity narratives that we find in the gospel record, recorded by St. Luke in chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before the Lord when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. 400 years. 400 years. Four centuries. If we were to roll back the history of our own country 400 years, it would bring us to the Jamestown colony in Virginia. That seems a long way back, doesn't it? Way back before the Civil War, back before the founding of the country, the Declaration of Independence, back before the colonial days of the Great Awakening. Over hundred years, then beyond that, the settlement. Actually, 20 years before our own Westminster divines met at Westminster Assembly and formulated our Westminster Confession of Faith. 400 years. For 400 years, prophecy had been silent in Israel mute not speaking no new canonical prophet had emerged in Israel since the days of Malachi but it is interesting that Malachi ends his prophecy and thus the Canonical prophets of the Old Testament scriptures with a couple of verses. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. (laughs) What a downer. (laughs) What a negative note to have as the last sentence of prophetic utterance in the old covenant era. And for 400 years, there had been confusion. There had been strife. During that 400 years, the Babylonian Empire had been overtaken by the Persian Empire. Xerxes and all of his people had ruled over the known world for over 100 years. Following the Persian Empire came the Greeks. Alexander the Great and his conquering armies had conquered that part of the world and spread Hellenistic culture and the Greek language over the whole world and had subjected it. Upon the death of Alexander, the empire split into four Regions and with four different kings are kind of uh, demi emperors under them. And then over 125 years passed, and the Romans came under Julius Caesar they had conquered, that land that the Greeks once held, and had developed that culture we know as Greco-Roman culture. During that period of time, Israel had suffered under all of those imperial conquests. Changing the land back and forth. And not a single word of a prophet. Where was an Isaiah? Where was an Elijah? Where was anybody to speak a word from God? We have Moses. And we have the prophets. But there's no more prophecy in the land. And for 400 years... That's just unimaginable to me when you see the sequence of the way the Lord was moving along in the Old Testament scriptures and moving His people. Even the sojourn in Egypt wasn't that long. Even the the period of the judges, which was a chaotic time in ancient Israel with the Amphictyone and the confederation of tribes and all the back and forth fighting the enemies and all. It wasn't that long. But now, for a period of 400 years, God had kept His people waiting, wondering, waiting, wondering, confused. It is a miracle beyond miracles that there was still a remnant in Israel. It is a miracle that by the time of King Herod, who came to power under Julius Caesar, his patron, King Herod was not really a king, (laughs) There were no kingdoms in the Roman Empire. There were provinces. They were governed by governors and proconsuls and all the rest. But they had bestowed upon him this honorary title of king just so he could feed his ego and keep this particular little sect of people in line. He wasn't even a legitimate heir to the throne. He was not a descendant of King David. In fact, he was a descendant of Esau. He was an Idumean. And he was a brutal king. And he even killed most of his relatives that he could get his hands on and any rival to his throne. And he lived a horrible and a bitter and a treacherous life. But he did do one thing great. (laughs) He built stuff. He was a builder. And he built great palaces and great fortresses. And one of the prime projects of his administration and his reign in Judea was to rebuild the temple, to take... Solomon's temple would have been destroyed during the days of the Babylonian destruction and had been rebuilt in the days of Zechariah and Haggai and Zerubbabel and all of those men that had come back from Babylon. And he had taken that pitiful little temple that had been rebuilt, which did not have the glory of Solomon's temple, and he had built it, into a fine edifice, maintaining the core of it with the holy place, the most holy place, adding to it courts in the outside and adding to it many pavilions and staircases and courts and porches and gates and access ways. It was a massive project going over several acres there in the center in the heart of Jerusalem. And it is a miracle after all those years that the priesthood in Israel was still functioning that is that the sons of Levi, the descendants of Levi and the heirs of Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, the original high priest that had descended down through the years. They had reconfigurated and reconstructed themselves. You read about it in the Old Testament uh, how they had put themselves back together as a tribe and as a priesthood in order to restore the true worship of God in the temple there in Jerusalem. And one of these priests, these descendants faithful over all of these years was Zachariah. Zechariah was what we call a rustic priest. He was actually from the hill country of Judea. He did not live in Jerusalem. He was not part of the, the group, the very close party that guarded the temple and lived in the quarters there and served on a regular basis. He was part of what they call the courses, or here it's called the divisions. He was the 8th division, Abijah. There were 24 of them, and they would come to Jerusalem for one week, once every six months. And it wasn't all that would come. A certain number would come, and they would perform certain of the official duties there in the court of the temple. And a privilege beyond all privileges was to be the priest that was selected by Lot to do the altar of incense, to offer the prayers. There were three prayer times in the temple, morning, noon, and afternoon at three o'clock. One of these, probably it was probably the afternoon uh, offering. They would call the people together and they would have the incense. And the good lifetime longing of the heart of Zechariah was satisfied when after All these years and all these times, He finally gets to Jerusalem. And He finally gets to be the part of the group that served right there at the most holy place in the holy place in the the temple. And He finally wins the lottery, literally. And He gets to be the one to offer the incense. The incense offering symbolized the prayers of the people. They would have a fire there upon the altar in the court and they would pour perfumes and oils upon it and that would make a steam that would rise up to the heavens symbolizing the risen prayers of God's people and it would be a sweet smelling savor because it had perfumes and ointments that would sort of take out the smell of everything else in the temple, the burning flesh of the sacrificial animals, the massive numbers of people that probably hadn't showered in a day or two any number of things that was unpleasant in the temple. And this sweet smelling savor would fill the air. And people would have a moment, just a moment of bliss as they would smell and experience something of the presence of God. Very similar to the cloud that filled the holy place. And so Zechariah was on this duty and when he does this, he stands before the altar, and he sees there an angel. It's Gabriel. And Gabriel has for him the message. You're here offering prayers for the people, Zechariah. You're functioning as a priest, offering up the prayers of the people. Let me tell you something personal. God has heard your prayer. How many years, 30, 40 years, have you and Elizabeth, Prayed for a son or child. She of the barren womb. Gabriel probably didn't say what I'm about to say, but I'll remind you that's the way God works. God works with the barren womb. That was the case of Sarah when she bore Isaac. That was the case of Rebekah when she bore Jacob. That was the case of the mothers of Samuel and Samson. That's the case. What God does when He gets ready to bring something new to His people, He brings them a little baby. And so here, God is about to make way for the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He doesn't do it by just dropping Christ out of heaven. But he does it through a process, the normal process of long expectation, long awaits. The process, oh well, let me, if I was a preacher, I'd preach this right here. Here's how God works He answers prayer. Zachariah, you've been praying. And I wouldn't be surprised if Zachariah had slowed down his prayers and almost given up. Because he says to Gabriel in the story, you recall, he says, I'm an old man. I'm an old man, and my wife is not that young either. And I like what Gabriel says. Zacharias says, I'm an old man. It's impossible. And Gabriel's reply is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I know what's possible. I live in the presence of God. I behold His face every day. I'm there hearing the worship service. I'm here, and I know what God has done. I know what God can do. And there may be 400 years that you've been singing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And there may be a lifetime you've been praying for a child. And it seems like, it it just seems like from every human's perspective that it's a hopeless case. But I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And when you stand in the presence of God, you know the possibilities. You know the potentialities. You know what God can do. And even though you may have your calendar out and you flip through it, and it goes into weeks, goes into months, and months to years, and years to decades, and decades to centuries... God has not forgotten. It's interesting what Elizabeth's name means. It was my mother's name. Elizabeth means God is an oath. El, God, Berith, or Berit, Beth. God is an oath. God is an oath keeper. God is a covenant keeping God. And here was this godly woman. It's interesting the testimony that was given to these people. Talk about how they were upright before the Lord and that they pleased the Lord. They walked in the statutes and the commandments. Let me ask you a question. Would you still be walking in the statutes and the commandments of the Lord if you hadn't heard a prophet preach in 400 years? Would you still be paying attention to the book of Moses and the book of Isaiah and the book of of Malachi even? After all these years as a people and as a... As a nation waiting, the nation been torn, would you still be singing the songs of Zion and talking about how the Lord reigns in Israel when you had seen Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans and every other godless people sitting on the throne and ruling your land? And even when your people had tried a somewhat of rebellion, had only gained part of their free and under the Hasmanian dynasty with the Maccabeans? And that's all you'd seen in your whole historical lifetime? Would you still be walking in the ways of God, still be keeping His commandments, or you would have forgotten God? You know, we haven't heard, we don't know. I mean, let's just maybe this thing about Christian living and godly living is just not really worth it. Maybe it's outdated. Maybe it's had its time and its past. Maybe God is not going to show up again and do anything anymore. But instead we find. The steady heartbeat of the faithful heart. Holding on to the covenant, keeping the commandments, longing for a Savior. And that's who we have here in our story today. People that are waiting, that are longing for a Savior. And John, I mean, and and Zacharias is given the name. Now, If an angel came to me and said I was going to have a son and I'd been praying for 40 years, I would say I'm going to name him Ron Jr. No, he was assigned a name. It wasn't even a family name. It wasn't even a Levitical name. But it meant simply one word, grace. It's literally the word Joanna in the the Greek. Joanna. It means Greek. It means the gift of God. It comes from the Hebrew word for for grace. And that's who John the Baptist is going to be. We're going to talk a little more about John the Baptist uh, in a Sunday or two and talk about his ministry of what he did. But let me point one thing that they said that John was going to do when he came to preach. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And by the way, you know the the reference there that that this was a revival of, of great ecstatic. No prophet was more spectacular in the Old Testament than Elijah. And John was the same kind of prophet. And and he had a similar lifestyle. He lived in the wilderness. He wore a similar garment. He had very much the same uh, way of presenting prophet. In fact, Elijah predates the writing prophets. Elijah did his work before we read about uh, Isaiah and some of the other prophets that came along uh, a couple of centuries later. Elijah is considered the premier prophet. He is the representative of the premier on the Mount of Transfiguration. was Moses the law, Elijah the prophet. And so the spirit of Elijah now comes upon John. He says, in this awesome and great day of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That expression always kind of puzzled me. I always thought of it in personal terms. Here's a dad and a little boy and they have some problems between them and maybe God is going to work a miracle where He'll take the boy's heart and change it and turn him back to his father. Now I know God does that. He did it in my life. Or maybe the father has some issues with his child and God will change the heart, turn the heart back to the little child. There's certainly a personal application to that. But what He really refers to is generations. The current generation, the generation of the children, the sons and the daughters, is going to become lined up with the generation of the past. In other words, the patriarchs, what God is going to do here, He's going to take Israel that is alive today, the nation of Judea that's alive today, the people that are longing and waiting, He's going to take that generation and turn them to the covenant generation, back to Abraham, back to Moses. He's going to line them up with what the fathers expected and what the fathers had been promised by way of salvation. And God was going to turn the hearts to one another. They were going to face each other. The the children were no longer going to be an alien people and a, a wayward and prodigal people. But instead, they were going to be Turn to God's way and turn face to face as they each, the children, and the fathers, turn to each other as they each face the cross, the man on the middle cross, Christ Himself. That's where we have our unity. That's where we have our joy. That's where we have our fellowship. Is when all faces of old and young alike turn to the one person who is promised, the one person who comes to save, the one person who is the mediator between God and man, the one person who takes our condition upon himself and handles it, and then takes his condition and bestows it upon us in a grand transaction. One of the prophecies concerning John the Baptist is that he will be a civil engineer. (laughs) He will conduct a great leveling project. He will bring the mountains down and he'll bring the valleys up. In other words, there'll be a level plain at the foot of the cross. It's level. Everyone stands Everyone looks. And as Moses cried unto them in the wilderness in his day, Look and live.